From our newsroom in London, this is the Standard. This edition is a preview of Brave New World, a podcast where Evgeny Lebedev speaks to leading experts about the latest trends in modern medicine and how to maximize health and longevity. To hear the whole interview, search Brave New World Evening Standard on your podcast provider or hit the link in the show notes. I'm Evgeny Lebedev and welcome to my podcast, Brave New World. I was born in the Soviet Union in 1980, where my beloved grandfather was a pioneering biologist and an early sustainability advocate. From a very young age, through sharing his work with me, he instilled in me a great desire to learn, one which I've been lucky to cultivate through the brilliant minds I have met over my years. We live in a world in need of healing, And throughout the making of this podcast, I've had the fortune of meeting some of the people helping us find new ways to rise to this challenge. So please join me on this journey as we venture together into the brave new world. I'm honored to welcome Dr. Gabo Mate, a renowned physician, best-selling author, recognized globally for his groundbreaking work in the fields of addiction and mental health. His insights have profoundly impacted our understanding of human experience. Born in 1944 in Budapest, Dr. Mate's early years coincided with a turbulent period in European history. His family, like many others, experienced the hardships and the uncertainties brought about by the Second World War and had to flee their homeland to escape the atrocities of the Holocaust. This contributed to Mate's deep understanding of trauma and resilience, on which he will be speaking about today, along with exploring the connections between mind and body and discussing his book, Myth of Normal, which tackles what he describes as a toxic culture in our society. Dr. Gabo Mate, it's a pleasure to welcome you on the Brave New World podcast. I wanted to start with asking you about self-limiting beliefs I noticed as I was coming downstairs to start this recording that, um, as I often do when it comes to anything slightly more out of my comfort zone, I start getting pangs of nervousness. I get mm-hmm. uh, increased heartbeat. I get wetter palms, faster breath. A lot of people in different ways have this. And I think it'd be really interesting for our listeners to uh, hear your opinion about why this happens and, and how they can work on themselves, how it can be improved. Sure. Well, first of all, I can relate. I, I gave a talk last night at the Troxy to 2,100 people. And um, I really beat myself up afterwards about maybe I didn't do well enough. I didn't give them enough. I was judging myself, you know. And uh, it's pretty common for me that the sort of an undermining, self-undermining questioning that happens. And um, there's something that they call the evaluation stress, which is when you're afraid of being evaluated, then your physiology gets stressed. And the things that you're describing, the sweaty palms and all that, those are signs of stress. Mm-hmm. Now, where does it come from? No baby is born with evaluation stress. No baby is born with self-limiting beliefs or with any beliefs whatsoever. So if we develop these self-limiting beliefs that we're not good enough, that we'd be judged as not good enough, that we have to justify our existence, 
that if we express ourselves truly, we'll be rejected or disliked. These are conditioned responses. And in my view, they're responses to early childhood experience. I'm sure a lot of people out there can relate to this. What have you done personally, or if you've done anything to accept that and be able to be a better version of yourself within the self-limiting beliefs that you've acquired as, as a child? Well, look, as I describe in my book, The Myth of Normal, my introduction to the world was as a Jewish infant living under Nazi occupation. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was two months of age, the, the Wehrmacht, the German army, occupied Budapest, where I lived. And uh, my mother, as you can imagine, as a Jewish mom, lived under terror, uh, daily fear of survival, discrimination, oppression, and so on. Children take their parents' emotional states personally. So children are narcissistic, not in the sense that pathologically narcissistic or egotistically selfish, but in the sense that they believe is all about them. Mm-hmm. So that when my mother is unhappy, I develop the belief that it's my fault and I'm a faulty person. So my first limiting belief really is that I don't even have the right to exist because I'm making my life, my mother's life so difficult. And uh, I actually, in the book, The Myth of Normal, I describe a, an experience I had with a, a healing experience with a therapist using uh, mushrooms. In this session, I experienced myself both as being present as an adult and I know that I'm in this session, I'm not hallucinating or anything, but I'm also experiencing myself as a one-year-old. And the therapist is my mother, and I start crying, and I say, I'm so sorry I made your life so difficult. So the very first limiting belief I I believed, that it was all my fault, that I'm not worthy. How do I overcome that? So there's an adult, before I overcome it, before I get over it, I act it out. And how do I act it out? If I'm not good enough and if uh, I have to justify my existence, which is the limiting belief that no human being should have to justify their existence. Infants exist because they exist. If they get the message that somehow their existence is a burden or, or that they're not good enough the way they are, then we develop coping mechanisms to justify my, our existence. In my case, I become a workaholic doctor. So... Yes. I'm not just working because I genuinely want to serve humanity, which I do. And I'm not just working because I genuinely want a decent standard of living, which I do. But I'm also working on an unconscious level to justify my very being, which means that I get addicted to validation and being important to other people because that temporarily offers me a sense of value. The result is... I ignore my own health, my own needs, and my family. So I think, how do you overcome it? How do you get over that deficient sense of self? The first thing is to recognize that you have it, and Mm -hmm. not to confuse it with who you really are. But I I wanted to um, ask you about your your book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing uh, in the Toxic Culture, what is it about our culture that makes it toxic? So the analogy that I use is if you were um, a laboratory uh, scientist growing organisms in a Petri dish, and you call that a culture, you'd call that culture in these organisms, laboratory culture, that's what we call it. <clears throat> and if these organisms were thriving 
and, and proliferating, you would say this is a healthy culture. But if large numbers are dying off, you would say it's a toxic culture. Now, if you look at the globalized world, particularly Britain, uh, Canada, where I live, or the United States, you find increasing number of uh, people mentally ill, more and more people being treated for depression and for anxiety in huge numbers, medications. Chronic illnesses are on the rise in the United States. 70% of adults are at least on one medication. 50% are on two medications. These are adults. Millions of kids are being diagnosed with attention deficit disorders, oppositionality, conduct disorders, depression, anxiety. Self-cutting is rising amongst children. Childhood suicide, particularly in the U.S., is rising. If this is a laboratory culture, you have to call it a toxic culture. But it, what is it about our culture that makes it toxic? I would see we developed much faster than we're able to evolve much, much faster. You've given the, um, I guess, the, the symptoms. What, what are the causes? All right. To go back to our laboratory analogy, if that culture in which we're brewing our microorganisms met their needs for nutrition and healthy living, it's a benign culture. So you have to say, what is it about our culture that denies people their needs? So human beings have certain needs, and uh, these needs are not arbitrarily defined. They're not new age. They're dictated by evolution. If you look at how human beings evolved, I mean, civilization with cities and private property and and divisions of classes and, and um, accumulation of wealth, it's a fairly new f- d- development in human existence. When I say new, our own species which is not the only human species ever to have lived. There were humans long before us. But our own species has been around, say, 200,000 years. Well, civilization, if our existence as a species could be circumscribed on the face of a clock, then our civilization is about five minutes old. That means until five minutes ago, we lived in small band hunter-gatherer groups out there in nature. Yes. Where children were always around adults where there was a whole, not just isolated mom and dad trying to raise a child in, a, in difficult stress circumstances, but the whole clan were parents to all children, children with a deep sense of safety and belonging. And there was a communality where people actually looked out for each other. We could not have survived otherwise. There's no other way that our species could have survived. And in common with other mammals, we developed certain needs and expectations. So an expectation of the child Human infants are a response to love and acceptance and unconditional holding. That's just the need of the child. And uh, all mammals hold their children. Rats lick their infants as soon as they're born. And the way the mother rat licks the infant has an impact on how the baby rat's brain develops and how they behave as an adult. One interesting thing that happened when I interviewed Prince Harry and uh, is that he was telling me, or I, was, I read his book, and in that family, there was no touching of children, there was no holding. When um, Princess Diana died, the then Prince Charles, the current King Charles, came into his youngest son's room, Harry's room, and said, there's been a terrible accident, your mother didn't make it, but it'll be okay. Touched him on the knee and left the room. This is how this child was told that his mother had died. Now, that was only replaying Charles's own childhood, 
when he was five years old, uh, his mother, the late Queen Elizabeth, goes on a royal tour for four or five months, comes back, and greets Charles by shaking his hand. So I said, in that family, there was no touching, there was no holding. And I said, even animals touch their children, which they do, because the infant needs to be held and, and, and touched. Is that a culture of repression? It's cultural repression, but it's also traumatizing for the child. And now, what's interesting is that the London Sunday Times then reviewed that interview, and they said that, I said, that the royal family treated like kids like animals. I said the opposite. I said I wish they treated them like animals, because animals actually, mammals actually hold and touch their kids. Do you think Britain is the most repressed culture on, on the planet? Or the English? The, the Celts are not, the Irish and the Scottish, but the English, are they? It's one of the more repressed ones. I, I was reading an interview with um, uh, the spy novelist John Le Carré. Yes. And uh, there was a fascinating interview with John Le Carré and a, and a, and a British author and writer called uh, Ben McIntyre. So these two characters are talking. And McIntyre says, there's no deceiver more effective than a public school educated Brit. He could be standing next to you in the bus queue, having a force 12 nervous breakdown, and you'd never be any the wiser. <laughs> so John Carey says, when you become that frozen child, but you outwardly functioning charming chap, there's a lot of wasteland inside you that's waiting to be cultivated. Now, th that speaks to highly repressed culture and the culture of the British public schools, which is to say, in North American language, the British private schools, was of repression and severe traumatization of, of children. And then these repressed kids with the stiff upper lip will go out there and impose their colonial cruelty upon Aboriginal people around the world without any, any um, hint of conscience. That took a lot of repression. Mm. I think there's a lot of belief that if you start... And this was this was also a conversation happening around your Prince Harry interview. And there's a lot of belief in Britain, and I think beyond Britain, that if you start exploring your your emotional side, if you start exploring your subconsciousness, if even if you just you know in certain cases if you just even speak to psychoanalyst, that yeah. it it somehow weakens you, it somehow makes you weak weaker person. I believe the opposite. Actually, it makes you a stronger person because it doesn't change you. If you can recognize what it is that you've gone through in life and what you've, what made you what you are, it, it actually makes you a stronger person. But going back to toxic culture, beyond the way that we raise our children, and is this purely a Western phenomenon? It's more first world than anything else. Uh, um, I mean, another need of children is to be able to experience and and, and express all their emotions, mm -hmm. including their anger, their grief, their joy, their fear. And in us, in Western societies, tend to be very utilitarian. Certain emotions are acceptable; certain are not. Certain expressions of a childhood's true nature are forbidden, that distorts the development of children. Now, I've, I just read a book called 1491, which is, um, of course, the year before Columbus 
arrived on the shores of um, what is now called North America. And uh, so it described indigenous societies um, prior to the arrival of the Europeans. In, in what is the um, northern eastern United States now, the pilgrims, the British pilgrims, were appalled at how the indigenous people were raising their children because the, these children were totally free to run around and do whatever they wanted. And the natives did not hit their kids. And to the Christians, this meant spare the rod, spoil the child. In other words, the closer indigenous people are to nature and to their hunter-gatherer origins, the better children are treated, but more respect, but more freedom, but more love, with more touch, with more holding. And this has been described internationally from Australia to the Inuit so that indigenous people living close to the land tend to parent far more naturally, far less coercively, and far more lovingly than the, the so-called civilized societies. But beyond the way we live in, in familial circumstances and the way we, we raise our children. What, what else do you think? It's toxic. Um, yes, because we've, we've developed so much. I mean, for me, for example, I, I know you, <clears throat> you, you, you said to me when we first connected that you were in a digital sabbatical and you highly recommended it. And I, yeah. you know, for me, tech is uh, evil. I can also hugely appreciate and value the benefits it brings to life. But yeah. for me personally, and I don't know about yourself, but when I open my telephone, my neurological state goes into total overdrive because there's such an incredible assault on your neural pathways from what's coming from this device. So that's one thing for me that I've noticed for sure that is an enormous cause of stress. And I'm interested why it's not really talked about very much, this particular thing. The um... I agree with you. Uh, the books that I've written, particularly this last one, it took me 10 years of research, and it would have been extraordinarily difficult without the Internet. At the same time, and my work has become so much better known because of the Internet and YouTube and so on. Having said that, if I could wave a magic wand and disappear the internet, I would do it uh, because I think it's done far more harm than good. And particularly in the realm of human relationships, of human isolation and the development of children. So, I mean, there's been studies now that shows that children's brain waves get distorted in the impact of too much screen watching and that the areas of the brain that have to do with intuition and emotional intelligence and cognition actually suffer because of screen exposure. And yet, now we're seeing one-year-old with their cell phones and their iPads. That was a preview of Brave New World. You can hear the whole show and listen to previous episodes by searching Brave New World Evening Standard on your podcast provider or clicking the link in the show notes.